Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Hello, and welcome to Gone Medieval by History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman. This summer saw the announcement that a previously lost monastery dating to the 8th century had been discovered in Berkshire by a team from the University of Reading. The monastery is associated with a very unique and powerful queen of the Kingdom of Mercia, Cunithrith, who was the wife of the slightly more familiar name King Offa. This week, I'm talking to the archaeologist in charge of those excavations and asking him not just what he discovered, but also to tell me more about Cunithrith's remarkable career as a Mercian queen and also the roles of these monasteries, which were far more than just places for monks and nuns to hide out and pray. I'm delighted to welcome to uh, the podcast today Dr. Gabor Thomas, who is an associate professor in the Department of Archaeology at the University of Reading, and he specialises in the early medieval period and particularly settlements and religious sites. So thank you so much for joining us uh, today, Gabor. Thank you for inviting me. Now, um, congratulations on your big discovery and excavations this year. That's, that's really great news. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the sort of stuff that I'm really into. So it's uh, it's a great privilege to be back on the trail of an Anglo-Saxon monastery. Yeah, fantastic. We're all so excited to hear about it. So we're going to get to that later on. But I was hoping that before we talk about the actual dig and what you found, um, to get a bit more context uh, for, for our listeners and sort of bring us back to 8th century Mercia. And so I wanted to ask a little bit more about this Queen Cunithris, first of all. Can you tell me who was she? She was a big cheese. You know, we know that women could attain power in early medieval societies, but she's a particularly good example. She is the queen consort of Offer of Mercia, the most powerful of all the Mercian kings, who expanded the Mercian kingdom to its greatest extent, and who tried, and in some ways successfully, to emulate you know, the great sort of Carolingian Frankish rulers um, at the time on the continent, in particular, you know, Charlemagne himself, who was in correspondence with. We know a fair amount about her from contemporary historical sources. They speak about her in very high terms and if, if, if somewhat generic. So she's described as a very pious person, perhaps isn't too unexpected. We suspect, we don't know for sure, but she probably was from the Mercian royal line, sort of that went back into the earlier part of the, the 8th century. So she was drawn from royal stock. So it was a very, if you like, it was a dynastic marriage. I mean, the other sort of snippets we get about her, she's mentioned or she's a, the signatory to 
to important documents. She's mentioned as the recipient of estates and charters. I mean, one thing that really signals her out as being special is that she's the only queen to have coinage um, minted in her name for, for all of, sort of Northwest Europe. This is truly, truly exceptional. And that that's telling us very something very um, important about the power that she wielded, equal to contemporary kings and archbishops. So, yeah, yeah, she's a, she's an important player, definitely. Do we do we know why? I mean, because it's so unusual that that she has this coin, especially. I mean, do we know why this happens, or have any sources that suggest that at all? We don't. We don't. I mean, we don't have it. Be lovely if we had some kind of a. Almost like a timeline that showed us, or you know, sources that enabled us to track the trajectory, if you like. Um, but you know, we just got this gap. We we only really hear about her in the sources once she's attained that level of power and she's married to offer, and subsequently she she continues to be a powerful person beyond his death. So it's 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 impossible to know, you know, the contingent circumstances that led her to rise to that to that level. And uh, can you say a little bit more about Mercia at this time? So we, this is a really powerful uh, kingdom and it's got connections uh, to the continent, uh, does it, as well? Or is this a very sort of... Is, is sort of all the activity, everything, just very much localised? Or, or is it a more a, a wider sort of network uh, of contacts and connections at this time? Yeah, very much the latter. So by this period, I mean, certainly by you know, the second, third of the 8th century, Mercia is the major political power in Anglo-Saxon England. And for, you know, decades, it's been expanding its borders. It's been trying to capture or it successfully captured strategic arteries that gave it access to international trade and contacts. That's why when we come on to discuss it, you know, we get involvement of Mercians on on the Thames using uh, monasteries as a way of, of kind of gaining control of the Thames. So they control London, ultimately, you know, that's a, a huge prize. They annex and subjugate neighbouring kingdoms that provide them with access to the eastern seaboard, including East Anglia. We can see them controlling monasteries in those areas. So really, it, it, by this point, it is a kingdom with international aspirations and you know under its under its rulers it's very very much taken in in, in that direction and do we know if they had any children offer uh, and contemporaries that's an excellent question um that i don't know the answer to <laughs> <laughs> that is the first time i've ever been asked that question <laughs> and i now know that's some homework i need to follow up on um, but that's a great question, but I don't know the answer. So um, I- I'm sure listeners out there will be Googling um, as as this goes out. Fantastic. Well, in that case, let's move swiftly on to the next topic. <laughs> so, OK, so she was clearly then um, involved in politics at the time. She has these coins to show us that she was someone of significance. Um, and I mean... But clearly she was the wife of Offa, so that was one of one of the key parts uh, of that. Mm. What happens uh, when Offa dies? Does she then continue to be in power or, or does she move on to another role? Well, I mean, in a, in a, it's very characteristic that, that royal widows enter monasteries. It's a, it's a traditional path, if you like. You know, although she had 
a lot of power. I mean, one must suspect that a certain amount of that was by dint of her marriage to offer. And when a really powerful ruler like that dies, inevitably there's instability, there's, there's, there's a certain amount of turmoil as people compete to, 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 to gain power for themselves and to succeed. Again, you really need to speak to a... You know, I'm sure that uh, uh, an Anglo-Saxon historian would be able to give you a much more subtle answer to that question in terms of the complicated power dynamics that, that followed Offa's death. But we do see her relatively swiftly entering the monastery um, at Cookham, so within a year of, of, of his death. You know, that's, that's a familiar pattern. So it's not unusual, but... At the same time, it's a way that royal widows manage to continue to play an active role in politics, to continue to exercise political and dynastic agency. Monasteries pro- provided a framework for, within, for that to happen. So when you say she enters the, the, the monastery, does she become the abbess and she, she becomes in, in charge of it, essentially? That's right. She is in charge of this institution. From that, we have to assume that it is either a nunnery at this point, so it's an all-female community, or it could be one of these quite characteristic institutions or monasteries that, that flourish in the in the in the earliest phases of Christianity in England, it could be a so-called double house or a double monastery, so with a mix of uh, monks and nuns. So either or, but she's heading it, irrespective of its precise composition. She is the de facto person in charge. And do we have uh, much information about that monastery um, in terms of, well, so obviously you've already said right now that we don't know uh, some of those basic details, but in terms of uh, the fact that this was uh, lost to us and its location was lost, do we just not have that many sources uh, that give us those details? We have some. Um, The reason we have these sources is that there was a a great tussle for a period. It was actually a three-way tussle between Mercia, Wessex and the Archbishops of Canterbury Overcook them, which demonstrates its strategic importance. So we kind of get sidelights on it in respect of disputes that were held at various church councils over the monastery there, but nothing detailed. I mean, there's snippets of information that tell us of its general importance, its strategic and political significance, but I mean, we know it was very wealthy um, and it was certainly regarded and highly prized because there was an exchange between the the kings of Mercia and the archbishops who exchanged the monastery. And it was exchanged for a huge amount of land in, you know, the historic heartlands of Kent. I think it was 100 hides. I mean, that's a huge valuation to place on on Cookham. So that just gives you an impression that, you know, just how highly prized this monastery was. So, but beyond that, so we knew uh, knew it was there, we knew it was a valuable, important uh, site, and vaguely the location, but not the exact details and not finding any evidence of it until this summer when your excavations come in. So tell me about that discovery. Yeah, um, I've kind of made a, 
a lot of my career in terms of field work has been, you know, based around going into currently occupied settlements because you know, they, they often don't see development in the same way that, you know, suburbs of towns and other areas where a lot of commercial archaeology happens. And often it's the case when you go into a community that, that has an understanding of its ancestry and its heritage, often there'll be quite firm views on, on what they think, you know, the significant as a site may or may not be. It's quite interesting. And sometimes there's real debate within the community as well. And that's very much what happened at Cookham. Because we started investigated this, investigating this site next to the churchyard that, to my eyes, looked like well, this is just an absolute dead cert for where the, the, where the early medieval monastery is likely to be. But there was quite a lot of resistance to that locally. There were people that were saying, no, actually, there's some place name evidence that it's, you know, a couple of miles behind us up the hill on higher ground. You know, that's more of a defensive situation. It's more likely to be where the early medieval monastery was located. So it was quite interesting to kind of go into that sort of environment where, you know, things were quite contested. But, you know, when we started recovering um, occupation of the right date on, on the site that, that, that we were looking at, that just to my mind confirmed that, you know, actually... This, you know, we are correct in believing that 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 was really the site, the, the the correct site. So, what sort of material did you find in the excavations? So, I mean, the important thing to before sort of discussing that is really the location is prime. We're sandwiched between the the medieval church of of, of All Saints in in Cookham, but it, we're right on the river itself. I mean, and that's just a kind a clear reflection of the fact that monasteries at this period were incredibly well connected. <laughs> um, and you see this pattern repeated. I mean, they're either located on major rivers or on coastlines by dint of the fact that to function as monasteries in the, in, in the way that they were supposed to at this period, they had to be connected and very highly so. So... The occupation that we're finding is in this really strategic location, just on the edge of a gravel island, sort of rising up out of the floodplain beside the river. And all that you would want to hope for, or, you know, in terms of what an archaeologist might call the Middle Saxon occupation. Buildings, metal trackways, middens, pits, hearths, production going on, metalworking, carpentry, you know, lots of evidence for spatial layout, ditched boundaries. You know, it's, it's, it's really, really characteristic settlement archaeology of the 8th and 9th centuries, but in this very strategic location besides a medieval churchyard. Tudor men like their women to look like? They should have broad shoulders, fleshy arms, fleshy legs and broad hips. What did 17th century Londoners think of coffee? A syrup of soot and the essence of old shoes. And what did executioners wear? A lot of these guys, they were clothes horses because it's a big public spectacle. All the eyes are on you. 
I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and in my podcast, Not Just the Tudors, we talk about everything from monasteries to the Medici, sex to spying, wardrobes to witch trials. Not, in other words, just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Subscribe from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Professor Susanna Lipscomb, and on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, I'm looking for answers to the big questions about every aspect of life in the early modern period. Like, how did the memory of Anne Boleyn continue to influence the court of her daughter, Elizabeth I? How were fairies brought to life on the Elizabethan stage? And how did the arrival of male-only doctors threaten the lives of women? In other words, not just the Tudors, but most definitely also the Tudors. Twice a week, every week. Subscribe now and follow me on Not Just the Tudors from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. And is some of that that you found reflective of, of this kind of high status site or is it just any generic settlement or, or is there really evidence uh, in what you've found so far that this was something of importance? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly produced enough, although what we've done so far has been pretty small scale, to show that it was performing the role of a central place. So there's lots of consumption going on there in terms of you know, food and diet. There's a lot. There's a lot of preparation of foodstuffs. There's metalworking. There's other types of production in other materials. The stuff being imported to the site from East Anglia and the continent. We can see that coming through in the pottery. So it's got these extensive. It's it's plugged into extensive networks. There's evidence of wealth on the site in relation to to contemporary coinage. There's a really nice but small but significant assemblage of personal adornments, dress, with a very female flavour to it, so very delicate dress pins may have been used for securing the headdress of the um, the, the nuns. Um, So some gendered aspects coming through from from the finds as well. So I mean, overall, this is not the sort of the range of material that you would expect to find on a a run of the mill type of uh, settlement. Yeah, no, that, I mean, it sounds very much like the sort of material culture that we get from other sites, uh, other monastic sites like that as well, I think, which is which is fantastic. Uh, one thing I want to just pick up on that you said, you talked about um, craft working and metal working and things. And I think it's, it's easy to have an idea that these monasteries were literally just religious sites where you'd sort of come and sit and pray quietly. And that's what, that's what you did. But that's not actually the case at all. I mean, can you say something a bit more about what would happen? You know, what, what was life like in an early medieval monastery? That's a really good question. And it's a question that kind of intersects with a much wider debate about how we should go about characterising monasteries in this part of Anglo-Saxon England, because there's an interesting duality in Anglo-Saxon England in the type of archaeology you get from monastic sites. So you go up into Northumbria or into northern Britain, or western Britain and Ireland, and 
The signatures for a monastery are often much clearer. So you might get, for example, evidence for the production of sculpture, sculpture being used whether for the furnishings of a monastic church or in relation to funerary practices. You might get the evidence for the production of shrines and other liturgical metalwork. On sites in those locations, we've been able to excavate over the sort of liturgical core of these early monasteries. So they produce evidence that is quite clear-cut and meets our expectations of what a monastery should look like. When we move further south, however, the evidence is more ambiguous because it crosses over quite strongly with secular settlements of high-status character, which also produce evidence for production, metalworking, lots of consumption, drawing upon a wide range of resources, formalised spatial layouts using bit-ditched boundaries, timber buildings of various kinds. So there's a number of sites, I can mention some of them, Flixborough, Brandon, for example, where there's been a lot of debate about, well, were these monasteries or not? Now, What's interesting is that a lot of these contested sites lie in eastern England, places like East Anglia, where we have absolutely no historical records. If monasteries existed in this area, very few are actually documented, and that's just an accident of the survival of written records. But what's interesting, when we turn to areas where we have excellent documentation, including the Thames Valley, Cookham itself, Kent... We find when we excavate these sites, and there are some problems because we don't always get the opportunity to, to excavate the liturgical cause, so we're working around the periphery of that, we find occupation that's very similar to what we see in secular context. So I know that's a bit of a digression and a long answer, but going back to your original question, what was life like? What were monasteries like? Well, part of the answer to that is they were central places, and in many respects, they overlapped with secular central places that, that existed at this time. But albeit with some distinctions, and I think to see those distinctions more clearly, you need to be able to sort of excavate within the litur liturgical cause of these places. That's when you start recovering, for example, monastic churches. I mean, what's an interesting question that remains to be answered is whether in this part of the Thames, churches of the 8th century were wood or stone. We don't know because we've never excavated one in this area. A big research question. We would definitely expect to find evidence for the monastic burial grounds, and it might be multiple. We know on other sites that you had burial areas that were reserved for the brethren and other funerary zones that were used for lay people that were buried there. It may be that there's, there's, there's other sort of liturgical structures that are located in and around um, the cemeteries. But once you start moving beyond that zone, in effect, you're, you're moving into areas that are very similar to what you would expect to find on a, on a secular settlement. But that doesn't mean that we shouldn't call these monasteries. I think there's some aspects of the debate or some um, commentators who almost gone too far and they've become even when we have the documented evidence for a monastery existing they're going well we found no evidence for sculpture on this site using really uh, northumbrian they've got a sort of template 
But we, I think we've just got to accept what the evidence is telling us. In this part of England, monasteries look very similar to secular settlements, albeit with some important distinctions. So that means then perhaps also that uh, more ordinary people were, were sort of there, they were taking part in what was going on there. These weren't these sort of very secluded just for monks uh, and nuns, but actually they were part of, of the local community, presumably. Absolutely. You would have had a social spectrum um, represented in one of these places. I mean, yes, at the heart of it, you've got a bunch of aristocratic women. Fundamentally, that's what nunneries were. But you would have had populations supporting the brethren because they were spending most of their time doing the liturgical rounds and doing what monks and nuns do. They need to be fed. Um, They need to be sustained. You would have had dependents residing at monasteries, you know, uh, uh, they would have been tied to, to, to these places for their lives, you know, in a very unequal you know, relationship. But that was the nature of early medieval society. Yeah, no, that's, a, that's a really interesting point. But if we go back then to the beginning, so then go back to, to who we were talking about here, and Kenneth and and her sort of link to this. Do we know what happened? Do we know uh, when she died? Did she die there? Did she get buried there? Do we have the answer to any of those questions? We don't. She's not mentioned in any lists of the resting places of royal members of the Mercian line. I think we have to assume, and that's another question for historian, why haven't you got a phone, why have you got a direct line to a historian? Yeah. Um, um, I, I don't know how old she was when she entered the monastery at Cookham. It'd be interesting to find out. That's another thing I have to, another thing I have to find out, actually. Um, but I think we have to presume, because that was pretty standard, that had she died while as abbess at Cookham, she would have been buried there as 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 one of its most important members, and the remaining um, brethren would have prayed for her soul. <laughs> you know, that's where royal member members of the royal family ultimately were buried in in monasteries just like Cookham. So it would have made sense for her to be buried there as its as its abbess so somewhere in the monastic burial ground i would imagine lie cunnethrith's remains well, that would be a, a brilliant to find wouldn't it um but presumably somebody like that it'd be difficult to identify because they wouldn't necessarily be given a burial that was sort of unique enough to to sort of single her out do you think yeah that's an interesting that's an interesting one I mean, it's not impossible that, you know, that she was translated. It's not impossible that as an important royal... She wasn't the foundress of the monastery. That's that's quite interesting, actually, because she comes along. It's already up and running um, when she enters it. So often it was the case that, 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 that members of the royal line that founded monasteries were subsequently enshrined and and became the these places became an important focus for royal cults it's not impossible that that happened at a later stage in the trajectory of this monastery at cookham I mean, it certainly couldn't be can't be ruled out and do you think there's hope of finding a cemetery there in your future work when you continue i think there's certainly a possibility of that I mean, the site that we're investigating goes right up to the the the, the, medi- the the boundary of the medieval cemetery, and what we know is that early medieval cemeteries were often more extensive than their medieval successors. On sites where you've got monasteries that become parish churches, 
you often find almost like a, a, a penumbra of early medieval burials beyond the boundaries of the medieval churchyard. So it's quite possible that we'd find, find something similar um, at Cookham. And are you planning to go back uh, next year to do more? Yes, we are. Um, we, we very much hope to return and, and run the excavations as a field school for the Department of Archaeology at the University of Reading. I think it would offer great training for students. It's also not very far from the department. It's only about half, a, half an hour away, which helps. And the other thing is we've got a wonderful support from the local community and voluntary organisations who have been heavily involved, who are heavily involved last summer. Um, so it's a great focus for collaborating with local communities in the Thames Valley area. So, yeah, for that reason as well, it works very effectively as a field school. Fantastic. And just the final question, what, what do you hope you're going to find in the next season? What would be the ideal outcome? That's a really that's a really interesting question. I, I tend not to try and sort of uh, <laughs> you know get my hopes up and just just uh, I mean it would be it would be lovely to find some of the sort of the liturgical zone of of, of, of the monastery, including a bit a bit of the monastic cemetery. Who knows? There might be remains of um, perhaps one of the churches that lay at the, the, the core of the monastery as well. Often there were multiple churches at these sites. So, you know, that would be fantastic. Fantastic. Well, fingers crossed for you. Um, and I hope I can come and visit in the summer. But uh, thank you so much, Gabor, for, for coming along to Gone Medieval today. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So that was Dr. Gabor Thomas from the University of Reading. This has been an episode of Gone Medieval by History Hit. Don't forget that you can also subscribe to our newsletter, Medieval Mondays. Just look in the episode notes and you can find out how to do that. And tune in for our next episode. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Dr Kat Jarman and I will be back soon. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.